So imagine that we have guests who come to our church for the first time, and they kind of look around and they make observations, and then they send us a letter about their observations. Wouldn't it be interesting if I could read you a letter like that today from a guest who visited Bethel and then made some astute observations and then sent us a letter like that? How many of you would like to hear that letter? I don't have a letter like that, but we do have a letter from Jesus. Can you imagine if Jesus visits, and, and probably you should care about visitors that visit a church and what their observations should be. That'd be just good business. But we should care pretty deeply if Jesus wrote a letter to the church, and he did. In the letters that he wrote to the seven churches of Asia that are recorded in the first, in chapters two and three of Revelation are included under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Bible for our own good, and that's where we're headed today. Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. The text is verses 1 through 7, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a church that was endowed with a great spiritual heritage. You can read all about it. The Bible says a lot about this church, and it's really pretty interesting reading. It would make a good movie, especially that bit about the sons of Sceva, it would be kind of PG-rated, but it would be interesting to watch, wouldn't it? You remember the sons of Sceva there that came uh, and they saw that they could maybe have the power to cast out demons, so they used the name of Jesus and Paul. And then the demons beat them up and said, you know, we know who Jesus is, we know who Paul is, but we don't know who you are. And they beat them up and ripped off their clothes. So that just made good reading. I heard a guy say, if you're having a fight and at the end you lose your clothes, you lost the fight. <laughs> just said that's how... <laughs> That's in there, in the Bible. I was at a youth rally, and my son Chuck was preaching once, and he told that story, and everybody was going for their Bible. And he goes, all night I've been talking, and nobody looked up their Bible until I told you there was a story about naked people in it, and now you all want to find out where that is. That's what he said. Of course, I didn't say that. I'm just quoting him. That's all there in the story about the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Of course, there's some good stuff in there about people that God used, Priscilla and Aquila, a powerful ministry couple. And then there's that character, Apollos, that you just want to read about. Well, I just thought it'd be neat to be like Apollos, who was mighty in spirit, eloquent in the scriptures, and he was humble and obedient to the Lord. And he was a part of that whole story of Ephesus. And of course, obviously, the great apostle Paul, and he stayed there and taught in the school of Tyrannus. And then, and then the church in Ephesus becomes like a church planting, sending church. And, and of course, the uh, probably two stints of, of the Apostle John himself pastoring the church in Ephesus in church history, they believe that he pastored there before and after his exile to Patmos. And guess who else, according to church history, was a part of the church in Ephesus? Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would keep you honest, wouldn't it? You would be like Jesus said, Right? Mary was over there. Um, I find humor in things common men don't find humor in. <laughs> so the church at Ephesus was endowed with a rich spiritual heritage, which you really should read about. I didn't deal with it very well there. But they were also surrounded by dark spiritual oppression. There was in Ephesus a temple uh, to Artemis, which if you read about it, is, makes pretty ugly reading about the kinds of things that happen there. Even today in modern Turkey, there is, you can find the ruins of the temple that was 
dedicated during his lifetime to Domitian, who, who began this persecution of, of John and the church. In Acts 19, the church was born in a spirit-bathed revival, and then it caused a riot because, you know, it touched the pocketbooks of, you know, the silversmith and all of that. And then there was that incident in Acts 20 where Paul goes to Miletus on his way to Jerusalem, and he meets with the Ephesian elders. It's one of the most tender scenes in the Bible. Is it shows the, the great affection that he had for the Ephesian elders and the affection that they had for him. Now, each of these letters, each of these seven letters, and you probably know, is broken up. The, the, the pattern is seven parts. Some of them are commended, and some of them are not commended. Some of them are condemned, and some of them are not condemned. So there's some variation in that. But, but the, the pattern here is the pattern of sevens. There's a greeting. Uh, there's a description of Christ which harkens back to the description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 that we preached about last week. There's what the church did right, what the church did wrong. There's a correction, there's a warning, or you can just call it a bald threat. Jesus sometimes threatens the churches. And then you have uh, something that occurs in every one of these letters that the end of each letter has. There's a promise to those who overcome or who are victorious or who are triumphant. It's the Nike word in the Greek there. And so um, there's the pattern. So let's look at the first thing here to the church at Ephesus, and we'll just read the whole thing first, and then we'll, we'll begin by looking at the, the greeting and then the description of Jesus. Chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So you have these seven parts in this letter. You have a greeting, the angel, to the, a message, to the, a greeting to the, to the angel or, or to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. N nobody's sure about this. Maybe the letter is given to the angel over the church or to a messenger, perhaps a, a representative, a human representative. But there's the greeting there to the angel, to the messenger of the Ephesian church. There's a description of Jesus, or there's a reference to the larger description of Jesus. And, and it says in verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What are the seven stars? The messengers of the churches. And what are the seven lampstands? There you are, the churches. So the lampstands are the candlesticks, are the lights, so it's interesting. The leaders or the angels or the messengers are like, the lights, the stars, <laughs> that's the symbolism there. And the, and the churches are to be like the lights, the, the candlesticks, the lampstands. And he says, now, before I say what I say, remember this. 
what I told you. I'm the one who has the leaders of the church in his right hand. And I'm the one who walks among the churches. It's kind of ominous. Why does each letter begin with a reference to the description of Jesus? Why do you think? Here, I have a theory about this. What we worship transforms us. We become like what we worship. What you admire in the deepest part of you, you tend to become like. What you, when you admire something in the deep part of you, whether you realize it or not, that you're worshiping that thing. You're, you're, you're giving it worth, weight, value, glory. And the worthy one is Jesus. And when you worship him, when the deepest part of you admires him, you become like him. And there is this spiritual empowerment to that. The Bible teaches this in many places. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is my favorite place. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Did you get that passage? That's powerful. That uh, passage is explaining how you become like Jesus by admiring him, and that the Holy Spirit empowers that. It's a very simple thing. What I admire, I tend to become like. But when I admire Jesus, and I'm a believer, and the Holy Spirit in me, the Holy Spirit empowers me to become more and more like him. So therefore, it would be a really good idea for me to admire him a lot. And I have a, a secondary part of this theory, and it's this, that the qualities that we need the most are the qualities that we should admire in him if we want to develop those qualities. And so each church, he cherry-picks a few qualities, reminding them of the whole image of Jesus, but also the part they needed to be thinking about. And I would think as a Christian, it would be a very good idea for you to think about what quality of Christ should I most admire and therefore I would acquire in progress that quality of Christ. And if you're not sure, be brave. Ask the Holy Spirit to tell you. Or be really, really brave and ask your husband to tell you. Or be really, really brave and ask your coworkers or your children to say, what do I need to work on? They will help you. And then you can admire that about Jesus. And you can sing about that about Jesus. You can pray about that about Jesus. And as you worship him, and the deepest part of you admires this quality in him, you become like him. I think that's what's going on here as this begins. Jesus is saying, don't ever lose sight of me. Just look at me. And there will be a transformational uh, transaction in that. So the messengers are in his hand. And he walks among the churches. I have Jesus I have the angels the messengers of the church on my right hand and I am I'm here among you I'm walking among the churches I, I he still does that today now now the third thing there's a greeting there's a description of Jesus that he tells them what they did right he does this in verses two and three and also in verse six and and, and a, a general statement about it is they're doctrinally very sound they they behave and they write and they believe right and where I grew up, and I'm, and I'm glad I grew up where I grew up, I grew up among people that were very conscious about doctrinal fidelity, doctrinal purity. It's hard for you to imagine a church that's doctrinally sound and doesn't have a candlestick. But this church is in danger of losing its candlestick because it's doctrinally sound, but it's missing something else. We're going to get to that. But, but they're commended first. And, and this commendation is significant. I, verse 2, I know your works. So it's a hardworking church. I know your toil. 
I know your patient endurance under pressure, right? I know you cannot bear with those who are evil. Huh. Good churches hate evil. Good churches hate evil. They can't stand it. There's an attitude today about, well, maybe good churches are tolerant. Well, not according to the Bible. They're, they're tenderhearted toward people that are in bondage to sin, but they hate evil. And they're commended for hating evil. And this is a good thing. Interesting. They also have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. They've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and they've found them to be false. One verse of the Bible says, and they call them liars. So there, are fal- there were false apostles in the early church. There were false apostles, false teachers, false professors in the church in Ephesus, and there are false teachers in the church today. Everywhere you look, and a good church recognizes false teaching and rejects it and calls it what it is, calls it a lie. So there again, in, in the modern church, it's kind of popular to kind of be positive all the time and, and never really call out evil. Listen, in, in verse 6, they actually name a group, the Nicolaitans. Now, we're not really sure who they are. Uh, Bible scholars, you know, they arm wrestle about that. But, but they're, they're actually, and he says, I don't hate them, but I hate their, you hate them, what they do, and I hate what they do. And they're named. So this is an interesting pattern. He said, these are all things that are good. It's good that you hate evil, and it's good that you sometimes name error, and it's good that you resist error and call what it is, and it's good that you're doctrinally sound. This is a commendation. This is what they did right. It's good that they worked hard and they behaved well. But then he says in verse 4, and this is probably the heart of it, but I have this against you. I have this against you. So the letter from Jesus arrives to the church where, you know, where they have this rich heritage and where they've resisted this great evil. And it says, I've got something against you. And it's not a minor thing. It's serious. There's a threat. We're going to get to that. The threat is very serious. And and this is in verse 4. But I know... I'm sorry, I skipped a a part of verse 3 reading it. You know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary. Then comes forth... But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I kind of like, I used to, I, I preached for years from the New King James. It says, you left your first love. Left is probably not as strong a word as it's supposed to be. It's, it's like divorce. It's a, it's a strong word there. I heard a man say, I think it was Crawford Loritz, he said, you should really care, a pastor should be really careful to be thorough and accurate when he teaches the Bible. He should recognize the cultural context and linguistic things. But here's what he said, and, and, and of course, I, I love the literature of the Bible. You should pay attention to the kind of literature it is. But he said this, and, and I think it, it, it's a, it has a bearing on this. He said, be very careful, though, to always honor the emotional context of a passage. Isn't that good? Always honor the emotional context. How would the original audience have felt what they heard here? They're floating along going, we have a heritage. We're the church that started the other churches. And Apostle Paul was here longer than anybody else. We'll tell you what he said. 
And we've had some pretty good pastors over the years. Our guys have books named after them, you know, Timothy. And then Jesus says, I have something against you. You left, you stopped doing the very first priority thing. Imagine the emotional context. So it's interesting because when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he, the last verse reads like this, and all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love that is incorruptible. Of all the rich things he talked about in Ephesians, including, of course, that prayer that was in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the heart of which is help them love you and see your love in a deep way. He ends the book by saying, grace to all those whose love is incorruptible. He's emphasizing this love. He gives that prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 with some stellar promises attached to it. If they understand and experience the love of God. Jesus, when he taught, he went to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6. This is true, Old Testament and new. What is the greatest commandment? You shall love God. That's the priority thing. You love God first. Before you resist evil and before you call out wrong doctrine, you have a love for God. You love God. Old Testament, new. Jesus' basic teaching, when they pressed him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God. With all your hearts, doesn't matter what else you do if you don't love the Lord. James got this in James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It's a famous passage where he's talking about not being worldly, but it's a passage that's often overlooked where he says, the spirit who dwells within you yearns jealously. In other words, the Holy Spirit has a right to be jealous for your affections. And that passage that we all love so much in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, who is it for? We know that all things work together for good to those who, it's for those who love God. This is the primary thing. And the Bible teaches that there will be a time when the love of many will wax cold and lawlessness will abound because of that. And so what he's saying is don't make good things ultimate things. Don't make secondary things primary things. Don't ever tolerate evil things. But love God, intimacy with God, love for Christ, it's everything. It's throughout the entire Bible. It's from the beginning to the end of the Bible. What is the purpose of mankind? Well, if you look in the garden, it's to have fellowship with Christ. He has, they have this unbroken fellowship with Jesus walking in the cool of the day in the garden. I believe a Christophany of Jesus. Of what is sin? But when you break fellowship with Christ, what is among other things, what is repentance? It's when your fellowship, your intimacy, your love, sense of love and intimacy is restored with, with Christ. What is it? What is the essence of the Christian life? Isn't it often described as abiding in Christ, meaning that you continually are in relationship, conscious of your relationship, you have intimacy with the Lord. What's the ultimate joy of heaven? The presence of the Lord. What is the ultimate horror of hell? The absence of the Lord, the, the, the impossibility of having fellowship with the Lord. There's a fifth thing, a correction. What does Jesus tell them to do about this? And it's interesting because he says, I want you to remember, I want you to repent, I want you to go back and return, do the first works. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That's the correction that Jesus told them to make. 
I want you to, a, a, a part of Christian flourishing is having a faithful memory, is thinking back and remembering, was there a time that I was more sensitive about my sin than I am right now? Was there a time that I was more faithful, when I was closer to the Lord, that my heart beat fast at the thought of Christ more than it does now? Was there a place, was there a time like that? I don't want to say too much because I will get in a lot of trouble. I don't like to get in a lot of trouble, but I remember this girl one time, and I wanted her heart. And I remember a winter night in the park when the snow had fallen. It was unusual in Springfield, Missouri to have such a deep snowfall. And, and I remember that night standing on a bridge and saying to her, you know, I'm going to ask you to marry me someday, which you don't do. That's stupid. You, you get a ring. You get the hardware. You, you do your diligence. You don't do like I did. You do like Kyle did this week. You, you do it the right way. Congratulations, Kyle, Emily. How did I do? I worked that right in. Go ahead. Anyway, so we're in a park, and I'm like, I'm going to ask you to marry me someday. She looked at me like, you're so dumb. So I was writing this message. I was thinking back at that park. And I was thinking about that snow and how pretty she looked that night. I didn't marry her. I married Lois. But no, no, that was Lois. That was, that was Lois. That was Lois. Of course, that was Lois. I, I remember back a lot. I remember that. I, I, I was clueless. I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, I didn't have a clue. Uh, but the Lord was kind to me. And. And, and so when I thought about this, when you, when, you, when you think about this text, you think about romance, which you kind of, I think, hints at. There's a similarity, right? Um, our love for Jesus should be growing deeper and more, and, and, and we have, which are more rich and more wonderful, which have more experience with him. Why? Just like marriage, he's forgiven us of so much. He's been so merciful to us. He's committed himself. He, we should be so thankful to him. We should remember and, and we should repent and thank God he's not, you know, you, ever, you have a Garmin in your car, one of those deals, you, you know, you punch in the tom-tom, you punch in the directions, and then you ignore them. And, and then you go and you pass your road up, and then it, it doesn't say, you idiot, you lost your way. You know, it, it says, like, it's, it's like, um, it doesn't even say you did wrong. It just says, take, make a U-turn, go back. And it's so nice about that. Jesus says, there's a, there's a wonder, there's a beauty in this, right? He says, you can remember and you can repent and you can go back. There's such hope in this. You don't love Jesus like you should love Jesus, but you can, you can, you can remember, you can repent, you can return. How wonderful is that? Let me give you some quick, let me give you some quick ideas that I have found helpful, and you'll come up with some of your own. How do you love God? How could they have loved God? How could you love God? I say, well, talk to him. That's, you would expect me to say that, right? I talk. Um, others talk sometimes. Tell him that you care about. Tell him what you care about. You, you, you do that with people you love. You tell them what you care about, right? 
and you care about what they care about. So can I ask you, shouldn't you ask yourself, would Jesus give you a letter and say, you left your first love. You don't tell me what you care about anymore. You don't tell me your burdens anymore. You don't tell me your heartaches anymore. You don't talk to me anymore. You don't listen to me anymore. You don't care about what I care about. We, you don't, you've, left your, you've left your first love. But like, I'm busy at church. I know, but you don't care about me. But, but I'm a pastor. I know, but you don't care about me. But I sing in the choir. Yeah, but do you, do you ever cry? Do you ever, does, does those, those words that you sang, do they, do they touch your heart anymore? It seems to me like you don't care you don't tell me what you care about, and you don't care about what I care about. But if you wanted to love the Lord, you could just start by telling him what you care about and caring about what he cares about. You could listen to him by looking at your devotional time as habits of the heart rather than a duty that you perform. Eagerness to hear God whisper. You could spend time with him. That's what you do with people you love. You set aside time for them. You could worship or admire him. You could give him gifts or give gifts in his name. More blessed to give than receive, he says in Acts 20. He's quoted in Acts 20 as having said, it's more blessed to give than receive. You want to be happy? You think, I got, to be happy, I need to buy stuff. No, no. To be happy, you need to give stuff away. That's what, that's what Jesus said. Um, so find somebody and give them something in Jesus' name for, out of love for him. How sweet would that be? You'd be like Bernie Sanders. I just want to say that. It was not an endorsement. It was just a very weak attempt at humor. <laughs> yeah. You could, <laughs> you could keep his commandments. You could do what he says. Like he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And one of his main commandments is love one another. You can just love people. When he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, almost without taking a breath, he says, and your neighbor is yourself. It's almost like if, if you have a kid, you would rather I was nice to them than you. You, you, would, you would tend to like me if I loved your kid, wouldn't you? you, you, you and so it is. Jesus says, do you want to love me? Just I got my, my kids are everywhere. Go love them, and in, 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 I'll take it as if you love me. I, I like to think of our church like a, like a bakery. <laughs> I, I think about this often. Like, imagine that it's a cold, dark night, and it's winter. It's very cold, and you're hungry, and you're thirsty, and you're lonely. And you're a little, and you're a little discouraged. And you're walking along in the city far from home, and it's cold, and you, and you start to smell cinnamon and coffee. And then you, you start to hear a noise, and then you see a light. Wait a minute. There's a there's a beautiful little bakery with the light glowing out from within. And you can smell the baked goods and you can smell the coffee. And as you get close, you can hear the conversation, the laughter and the joy in there. And then you get to the window and you look in. Sure enough, these nice people are in there. And they're all just loving on each other. They're enjoying the baked goods and they're enjoying the coffee. And they're having a great time. And you think, this is, I, I, you, you go over and you take hold the door. You, you can't get in because it's locked. And so you knock on the window. And then people are very friendly. They wave. But nobody opens the door. And you're like, Bob Euchre. <laughs> They're having a good time in there. But you can't get in. What would be worse than a church that wasn't loving? A church that loved each other but didn't love you. Imagine this. You know, what we're supposed to do is if we love Jesus, get up. Go out. 
into the streets, in the cold, dark streets, where people are hungry and where they're thirsty and where they're sad, where they don't even know they're lost, they don't even know we're here, and you say to them, not like, we're friendly to each other. We're like, we're friendly to each other, and you can be a part of it. We're going to also welcome you to be a part of this. Great. Then people start getting the idea. There's human love there. Where did that human love come? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. Because we didn't have love until we met Jesus. And he gave us love. And that's why we love. You could, you could invite people into the bakery. You could invite people over to the house. You could invite them for breakfast. You could do something for them. You could give them a happy word. You could do it all for Jesus. If you did it out of love for Jesus, it would be an expression of your love for Jesus. You could do that. You could call it communion with him. You could let, not let anything come between you. You could make sure, you could, you could just have a period of time where you say, I'm not going to turn on my radio on the way to work. I'm just going to search my heart to see if there's any words I've said or thoughts I've had or motives I've had or things I've done that aren't pleasing to the Lord. Then I'm just going to admit them to take them away from being between me and the Lord. This would be a way you could love the Lord. And this would be a powerful thing to do. Some of you, you, you haven't done that lately. And you should. You could see hardship as an aid to communion in 2 Corinthians. Let me just read this to you. Uh, Paul did this. When Paul went through hardship, he saw it as a way of getting closer to the Lord instead of like going away from the Lord. Listen to how he put it. A thorn in the flesh was given me in the, in the flesh. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It's almost like it was bad, it was good. It was from Satan, it was from God. It almost sounds like that. Three times I pleaded with the Lord uh, about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul used his hardship, which he felt like Satan was trying to oppress him, but he recognized in the sovereignty and the providence of God it would be used for good to enhance his fellowship with the Lord. See what I'm saying? When you go through a hardship, you can turn and just walk away from the Lord. You can turn and you can walk away from your Christian friends. You can turn and you can walk away from the church. Or you can use that hardship as a way of saying, I need my people right now. I need my church right now. And I need the Lord right now. And I've so often met people who are struggling. And I've said to them, you know, Oh, did, were you there two weeks ago? Because I pre and they say, no, why? Well, you know, I wasn't feeling good. I didn't, you know, well, they weren't ill. They were discouraged. And I'm like, hmm, because I worked for hours. I'm not being crabby, right? Look at how I'm smiling. But I worked for hours to prepare a meal for you that you didn't eat because Satan got you discouraged. I don't mean you had pneumonia. I mean, I'm, you got discouraged. You thought, you know, I'm just going to, I've seen it happen a lot. I'm just saying, when hardship comes, use it as an aid to communion or share your secrets with him. Secrets bind the heart together, don't they? And, and, and learn his ways. Don't treat him like a plastic eight ball that you just get out when you want to know the future, right? Because he's the living God of the universe who wants you to love him and he will love you back. Occasionally schedule a breakfast with Jesus. Remember, do you remember Peter when he strays from the Lord and denies him three times and Jesus sets up a little breakfast on the shore outside? Can you imagine? And Jesus is just saying, tell me you love me, tell me you love me, tell me you love me. Okay, now we're even. You're back on the team. Isn't that great? I, I love that. That's one of my favorites. I didn't tell that story very well. But oh my goodness, is that a beautiful story. Read it. Jesus is the kind of God 
who would make you breakfast when you strayed and denied him and would very gently, very creatively call you back into fellowship and back into service? What if you said, Jesus, we need to have breakfast because I think I've denied you a few times and I need to come back. He would say, let's do that. Some of you need to have breakfast with Jesus. That'd be a way to love him. That'd be a way to do the first works. But if you don't, what happens? According to the Bible here, he says, he will take your light. He'll take The church loses its ability to be the church. It loses its charter. It's not a church anymore. This shocked me this week as I studied this. I thought, wow, I never thought of this before. A church could be doctrinally sound and could hate evil and could work hard and not be considered a church by Jesus at all. I never had a category before this week on that. When I studied this, I thought, I would have just thought, if you're fundamental, if you're Bible-believing, if you're hard-working, okay, you probably need to be a little bit more loving, but you're still a church. No, Jesus may take your candlestick away and say, you don't represent me anymore. This is frightening. There was a restaurant in Russia that called itself McDonald's. And they, they weren't a McDonald's restaurant. And the McDonald's Corporation found out about it, and they went and visited them, and they paid them money. They said, we'll give you a large amount of money. All we want you to do is change your name. And they said, we'll take the money. And they, they stopped calling themselves McDonald's. What if Jesus sent a letter to the church that said, please don't call yourself a Christian church anymore, because you do all that Bible stuff, but you don't love me, and you don't love others. The love is gone, so the light is gone. Now, would it be, would it be faithful, I think, in, in terms of an application to say, to apply this individually and say, if we don't have love, we don't have light? I don't think it would be a stretch. I think it would be accurate. I wouldn't want to lose my light. As a leader, maybe, maybe the... Maybe the angels of the churches are pastors or elders or, or key spokespeople. And they're called stars in the right hand of Jesus. Wow. I would get a Sunday school class if I was gifted to do it so I could be in the star in the right hand of Jesus. I would teach Sunday school. I would serve in the nursery. I'm not being, this isn't a cheap recruiting tactic. I'm serious. What if Jesus looks at the church and he says, when you serve me, when you teach Sunday school for me, you're a star at my right hand. What if you had a little girl's class and, and you really did a good job with it and you studied it hard and you loved those girls and you prayed for them and you knew their names and you knew how they were being tempted and you watched over them and they, they came to church because they knew you loved them and every day you, you prayed for them by name and you said, Jesus, I love you and the way I'm going to love you is i got a little corner of the basement where I meet with little girls every Sunday morning and I show them your love. That's what I do. And this is sincere. This is real. This is Jesus' love. Jesus is like, you're a star in my right hand. But if you don't love, don't call yourself a Jesus church or not. Even if your doctrine is perfect. Even if you work hard. That's amazing, isn't it? That's kind of shocking. And, and so he says, are you listening to me? When the, when the kids were little, sometimes... I, I thought they weren't listening. And I would get down on my knees and I would take their precious little fat cheeks and I would hold their face 
And I would go, look at me. Look at me. I think Jesus is saying to the church, are you listening to me anymore? You still listen to me. Look at me. Listen to me. I have the stars in my right hand. I walk among the candlesticks. Uh, and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's like, listen. Spirit is speaking to the church. What's he saying? He's making promises. He's warning. And every warning is an implied promise. And every promise is an implied warning. Right? He says, I'll take your candlestick. In other words, the implied promise is you have a candlestick for God. He says, you will eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God forever. In other words, won't eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God forever. Should you not be a genuine Christian? I believe that's what this is talking about. But you, you have an implied promise with every warning, an implied warning with every promise. There's an old farmer from Kentucky visited his brother in New York City. And they're walking along the street. And they're near Central Park. And the old farmer from Kentucky says, stop, listen. Did you hear that? It's a cricket. His brother goes, you heard a cricket in New York City? All these taxis, all these blaring horns, these sirens, these people. This, this. He goes, how in the world could you ever possibly hear one cricket in New York City? And his brother just laughed. And they walked on a little bit. And the old farmer reached out in his pocket, took his pocket full of change out, and he threw it in the in a sewer grate, kind of clattered, and everybody stopped and looked. And he said, you hear what you're listening for? You hear what you're listening for? Church, are you listening for the word from the Spirit? You're the dad of your home. You're the husband. You're the dad. Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit says to your family? You, a Christian woman, God loves to give secrets to the wife so that the husband respects the wife because she heard the word first. Happens all the time. Are you listening? Every once in a while, a kid can change a parent like nobody can change them because of that powerful love that they have. What if a kid, what if a young man, what if a young woman would listen to God and hear from God Say, you know, can I say something? You remember that time with Lois when we lost our having a little, well, one little, it was actually kind of a hard time, and we were disagreeing, and it was sad, and it was because I had done wrong. And and uh, and I was thinking, well, I just can't untangle this. And uh, Hopi was a little tiny girl, maybe four, maybe three, just a little tiny girl. And I don't know what to do. We were just we were we weren't, we weren't doing good. And I said, Maybe we should just pray. And it's kind of like, you know, when the adults go, go ahead, you go first. A little hope he prayed. You remember that? I mean, it was like, where did that, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Lois and I both know that came from the Lord through that little girl that night. And the darkness lifted, the sadness lifted, the tangle lifted, untangled. You in a tangle. Maybe what if what if the kid what if the kids and the, ch and the Christian kids and the family 
wanted to listen to what the Spirit says to the family. And then they said, Mommy, Daddy, hey, please forgive me because you always have to bother me to get me to do my chores. And, and the, the Lord told me I should, I should be cooperative. I should do what you said. Wow, well, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, uh, if the church started listening to the Spirit might get real interesting. Speaking of emotional context, imagine you were there. Imagine that you were in the church at Ephesus when the letter arrives. There's a, there's a party of six, seven? I don't know. I have an active imagination. I'm imagining these seven messengers, these, these key leaders, that Eddie maybe was the chairman of the elders, you know, and these guys are together, and they're going from church to church, and they have the whole letter, but they have the part of the letter to that church. You could hear a pin drop. The, the, the church gathers at night because it's my story and I'm making this part up. And, and the, the lights are burning and everybody worked all day. And now the church said, we got a letter from John, the apostle on the Isle of Patmos. And it's not from John, it's from Jesus. And it has a part for us. It's from John and Jesus. It's a part for us. And then the church listens and I know your labor. I know your hard work. I know how you hate evil. They go, yeah, like Temple of Artemis, Temple of Domitian, demon-possessed people, sons of Sceva, yeah. And I know that you have resisted those false teachers that came. And they're going, yeah. But I have something against you. <gasps> Does the house get quiet? You don't love me anymore. Like you used to love me. What happened that then? Did it get real quiet? I bet it got quieter than my Bernie Sanders comment. Everybody got like, I bet it got quiet. Was there, was, there a, was there a woman over here in the corner that started to weep? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Did the elders drop their heads? What happened? I don't know. But you just heard the letter. How are you responding to it? How does God want you to respond to this letter? Hmm. I had a guy that influenced me a lot. He was really good. He is a good man. And his name is Jim Sammons. He's a real estate uh, guy in Dallas. And he taught me something that helped me when I was young. I'd gone to a conference and he was speaking there. And I, I went to this conference year after year. And when I would go to the conference, I would always resolve to do better. And then I would always fail. And then I would always go back and I would think, I'm such a loser. I got these notes already. And I remember one year he said, I know that some of you feel like failures. And I'm like, he says, but, he says, and it was a men's session. He, in the men's session, he said this. He said, but the, the measure of a man's conviction is not that he never fails to do what he has a conviction to do. Because the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times but rises up again. He said the measure of a man's conviction is he just keeps getting up and he keeps going back. And that would be true for ladies too. The measure of conviction is not that you never fail, but that you return to that. And this is what Jesus is saying to this church that he loves. And they did it. 
for many, many years, they did return. They, in terms of church history, they had a rich heritage after this. They did obey this. And they, they came back. At the same conference, I had a friend named Phil. And Phil got up at the men's session one year. And we were just getting ready to leave. And I was just thinking, here I go again, another year, where I'm going to not be able to pull off. But part of it was there were a bunch of things that were extra biblical that nobody could really do anyway. And I didn't know that yet. But that was part of it. But Phil gets up and he says, before the men leave, and he says, Phil Bowman, and, and Phil, Phil's bald, part of the story. Phil doesn't have any hair in his head. And, and Phil says, I was reading in Numbers, and I was noticing about the Nazarite vow. And how in the Bible, when, when a man would make the Nazarite vow, when he made the vow, he let his hair grow. And then after a while, you could tell a guy that had a Nazarite vow on him because his hair would be unusually long. But Phil said, I noticed something in Numbers chapter 6 that I never noticed before, and it encouraged me, and I want to tell you. He said, here's what I noticed. He says, if the person that made the Nazarite vow defiled themselves, there was a provision for that. He was to shave his head and start over. But then it would be humbling, wouldn't it? Because everyone would go, oh. What Jesus is saying to the church, and I think to us, is if you haven't loved me like you used to love me, or if you don't love me like you should love me, then shave your head and start over. And, and, and that's not all. Notice what it says at the end. And the one who conquers, which it says in every one of these letters, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the victorious one. I will grant for him to eat of the tree of life. And this is one of those things, the continuity between Genesis and Revelation. The tree of life, they're sent away from the tree of life, the, the symbol of, of total fulfillment of every human need forever. And the tree of life is restored in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. And the ones who are believers will have every need satisfied forever, the tree of life. When I... The sun came out uh, the other day, and I was like, wow, I missed that. I haven't seen that for a long time. And I always remember, like, you know, you have, you have kittens, or you, you cat people, cat people, and you, you know, one thing kittens do, that's one of their few enduring qualities, enduring qualities is, just kidding, is they curl up in the sun. You know that? I love to see a little cat or a puppy go over, find a spot of sun, curl up in that. They're smart. My kids would get up in the morning. They'd find a spot of sun. They'd curl up in the sun. I still can see pictures of that. Yesterday, the sun was shining through the windows. I don't know, but fun. It was such a pretty day. Lois and I spent the day together on Friday. On Saturday, we decided not to spend the day together. She went doing some stuff. And so I knew I'd have some time alone with the Lord and to get, you know, work on this and think about this. And the sun was just pouring through the window, just pouring through. I'm getting older, so I'm like, man, I missed you so bad. And I decided I'd take a nap, which is a luxury after we get up early and pray, but we take naps. And, and so I went over and I arranged myself so that the sun would shine on me. And I just thought, wow, it's nice to be here with the sun shining on me. Jude said, keep yourself in the love of God. Jude knew that the sun of Jesus' love is constantly shining through the windows of our life. And he knew how important it was for us to go over and just bask 
Jesus is willing to love you. Jesus will let you love him. Everything else works when you do that. John wrote in his epistle to stay in love with Jesus. He said it this way, abide in my love. He quoted Jesus in his, uh, in his uh, uh, gospel. In his epistle, he wrote, keep yourselves from idols. It's like, don't, don't give the love that belongs to me to something else or to expect from something else what only I can give you. That's idolatry. Keep yourself from idols. And Paul wrote, God is faithful. By whom you are called into the fellowship of his son. The Christian experience is called being called into the fellowship of his son. And so I think it would be good for us to pray and, and thank Jesus that he loves us and that he lets us love him and that these rich promises are ours and these warnings are to sober us. And then maybe sing a song, a prayer to the Lord. Give me more love for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the attention of the people to your word today and the preciousness of every single line of your word and how sweet it is that the sunshine is shining today here in Michigan. We can see it, and it's shining through the windows of our soul and offering your love to us. Give us the good sense to curl up in that sunshine, to receive your love, to love you back, to love others for your sake. More love to thee, O Christ.